series two this time it's a more than usual historic episode we're going to see if printers were in the original mile high club look at the history of the now rapidly fading check system and what exactly is a bastard title and finally we look at some largely ignored crew of the titanic it's typesetters and printers we invite you to settle in to listen to the ramblings and musings of some long-time members of the print industry. Now onto the croaking tones of the Leadfellas and their musings on these tales of print history. Enjoy! Were printers in the first Mile High Club, believe it or not? But here's a short tale that I stumbled upon. It relates to a French hot air balloon that was launched in October 1863. It was called the Giant. It certainly lived up to its name. Suggest if you can go have have a look at our blog site. Um, we have a link to an article on it. You can see some pictures there. Incredible thing. Now reports of the time said it was called Le Giant, and I'm going to say that I can't pronounce French. It was 60 meters high and had a capacity of 6,000 meters cubed, so it's 22,000, so 210,000 cubic feet. In fact, the giant was so wow. enormous and amazing. It inspired Jules Verne to write the adventure novel Five Weeks in a Balloon. And well, he must have also, he, didn't he write Around the World in, I don't know, 80 days or something as well? Something like that. 10,000 yeah. leagues under the sea. 10,000 leagues, that, I don't know. Yeah, that was Jules Verne too, yeah. yeah. Kirk yeah. Douglas. Yeah. I think the balloon was what blew his mind. You have a balloon this large, yeah. and the wicker car underneath it is, is also the... A thing to behold, apparently. It's so large, in reality, it's, it's a, they describe it as a small oblong house. So it has a ground floor, a gallery. The entire dimensions were 8 feet in height by 13 feet in length. Uh, the only wonder is how much accommodation has been provided in this slight wicker basket construction, which is cleverly disposed of in such a manner as to comprise a small printing office, a photographic <laughs> department, a refreshment what? room, a lavatory, a compartment for the captain's bed, and the luggage of the travellers, and another compartment at the extremity with three beds. You see where I'm going with this. So that there's a mm. website, have a look at that. What's not mentioned in this obs is the observation deck, on which you could dine. There are assorted anchors and grappling hooks hanging off it. Axes and rifles are attached to the baskets. And what really grabbed my attention was the small printing office in a hot air wicker basket. Now, that'd be awesome. <laughs> what wasn't made clear in all the reference to the printing work is exactly what it did. But I won't let that spoil the story. It sounds like the Titanic of the skies. And there's a, um, there's a website called Airspace Magazine. And it's got a picture of the, the basket. You can have a look. And there's people going up flights of stairs into this. It's huge. That is something, isn't it? Wow. It certainly is. So the question is, so how well did it fly? And I said, did someone mention the word Titanic? Did the airship survive its maiden flight? Yes, but it was underwhelming. The balloon was made ready for its first flight. Estimates of up to 80,000 people being on hand to watch it launch. Brass bands played for three hours while the balloon was inflated, and the crowds were less than amused. Those on board were hoping for an overnight trip. They didn't expect what was to come. And one of the accounts said, the giant was compelled to descend near the Marcy, so Marcy Marsh, two leagues from where they started. After three violent shocks, the last of which completely turned everything in the car topsy-turvy, it descended on its side. The rupture of our safety rope while travelling by night forced us to throw out our anchors. 
One of the prongs of the first anchors, having broken, the, the principal anchor fortunately took hold on the ground. We were able to let out the gas, notwithstanding the violence of the wind, and the car was set at half past one in the morning. Some slight contusions and sort of some slight contusions and a contusion of the knee of one of the passengers. So, in other words, the thing flew off, got out of control, uh, and then landed one in the morning. Subsequent flights were even more disastrous. The balloon travelled 400 miles through France to Germany. It well, crashed that's impressive. Well, it is. But it crashed near Hanover, where the balloon and the basket were dragged along the ground, with the basket being deposited on a train oh. line. <laughs> An oncoming train managed to slam on its brakes and stop just in the nick of time. The giant did not prove viable and it was eventually sold off. You can only wonder how big the hell box was on the onboard printing office, especially after the various crash landings. So I hope you enjoyed this tale. As often said, truth is stranger than fiction. You'd have to imagine that any passengers earning frequent flyer points in this craft would have been made of very stern stuff. Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I just just love it for the. Why would you put a printing press in there? <laughs> yeah, you'd be better better off putting it on ice on the River Thames. Let's face it. <laughs> yeah, some people do that. In the ballast. Don't worry, the check is in the post. The common refrain. It was always when I was a younger. It was a way of buying time if you didn't have any money. Uh, so the days are fast coming when another long-term printing process is set to disappear. And we had talked a bit about um, the Kalamazoo story and checks were once their bread and butter. And probably, as we, I think we the story tells us, it was a, literally a license to print money. So from a printer's perspective, the production process to print checks included a raft of security features and encoding to make sure checks were cutting edge to the end user who could write out and receive payments for their checks it was a great convenience. It was a win-win all round. Yeah. So boomers, and probably all of us, in particular, have fond memories of checks. Often, it was their first experience of banking. Opening birthday cards from grandparents quite often contained a check in lieu of a gift. So today, the scratchy card's taken its place, along with the gift card found at most supermarkets. Yeah, true, true. Yeah, very true. But, you know, but it was more than a gift-giving convenience. Paychecks were also a real thing. As were tax returns to the government before they d direct debited, the check was the currency you carried when you didn't have hard cash or yeah. needed to pay a large amount of money. Car there. When you travelled, you always had to make an appointment with the bank to sign a wad of traveller's checks before heading off overseas. Yeah. The time changing. So this is a quote, and this is taken from Newscom. The number of checks... Process in Australia each month has dropped from 45,900 in January 2012 to just 6,549 in October 2017. The forecast predicts circulation will fall to only 3,000 checks processed by December 2018, with general usage continuing to decline until checks completely disappear towards the end of 2019. Generation wow. Z, which covers all children currently in primary and secondary school, will likely grow up and not recognise a paper check at all. Uh, and I think that's quite true. Yeah. While checks have become an increasingly rare sight in recent years, they were the main non-cash payment method until the 1980s, when convenient electronic payment systems like credit and debit cards grew in popularity. So that's, that's quite true. I, my, my kids don't know what a check is or have never used one. 
I still have a checking account. I still have some yeah. chats. Do you have a check? Yeah, I do. I still do. Sure. I've um, got one, but uh, the, the account's closed, so the checkbook's null and void. Oh, <laughs> okay. Well, to, be honest, to be honest, I think you're quite right, but... My checkbook belonged to yeah. They, they moved the the bank got trans the credit union got transferred to a bank. I mean, I I got a check probably three or four months ago from the lottery office because I'd I'd won like twenty five bucks on lotto and I hadn't collected it because I didn't know. But they they I was a registered player, so they leave it three months and then they send you a check. You know. Oh, okay. <laughs> So they are still about, but I don't know how long. But they, you know, they might make me add a, a bank account to my um, my uh, lotto registration. I don't know, but uh, at the moment they're still sending checks. Yeah, oh, checks today are a nuisance. I mean, I've, I've got a, a business. Well, they account. are. Yeah. You got to go to the bank for Christ's sake. Who wants yeah. to do that? Back in the Mickey years ago, when they sent the checks in the mail. Yeah. Um, they're just putting off payment. They, 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 then they bounce anyway. You, you're always chasing money. Yep, that's no, it. That long ago. Yep. I still do it. I just don't know. I don't get it. No, oh. I'm, still, I'm still in existence. It's, they're just taking a mickey. Yeah. <laughs> well, I have What's... the first experience of my grandmother. You talk about grandparents giving checks. Well, my, my, not my grandmother, my mother-in-law, my children's grandmother, giving them checks from England. For... Ah. And so actually, she wrote a check from my wife, takes them as a gift. Yeah. So we the bank and it cost $40. Oh, yeah, because of the, the changeover and the international fees and. It's their commission. That, that's what it costs now. That's 40 bucks per check. Yeah. Yeah. yeah the check isn't worth 40 bucks. If you're giving you know, 20 quid or something to your grandparent, your grandchildren, to go and yeah. buy, you know, you, know, what, what, you know, what even thoughts and processes are. Uh, <laughs> it's not enough yeah. money in check to pay the commission. That's yeah. it. Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, there's a there's a Seinfeld episode about checks, yes. if I recall. I saw that. Yeah, it was on television the other day about the the Japanese checks. There. Um, oh the yeah. Checks, the twelve cent checks. Each and then there was the other one, the, the the grandmother. The auntie or the grandmother, yeah. <laughs> and it, it put her into her bank account into debit, and she had to go and put some money in, and then the the bank had moved. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. Yes, exactly. Yeah, we, we all have fun fond memories of the check. So what yes. I'll do is take you on a on a brief chronology of the check in the UK, and a lot of this article came from a really good site that Barclays Bank runs, and um, recommend you have a quick look at it. So. 1659 was the date of the earliest known surviving English cheque. By 1717, the Bank of England had introduced printed cheques. So that's the printers got into it. By 1764, in the 18th century, some rudimentary securities in place. So cheques were printed with the name of the issuing bank in the mid-1700s, and the swirled designs on the left of a cheque were an attempt to prevent counterfeiting. Yeah. 1811, the first personalised printed cheques were produced, so... There were people who had to, had to jump on Kalamazoo. By 1863, checks were changing. The first appearance of a stamped account number and the perforations on the edge of a check suggest that they uh, came from checkbooks that we're kind wow. of used to today. 1964, a big year in check history. As check volumes increased, automation 
of the sorting process became a necessity. Magnetic in character recognition, MICR, was introduced. Yeah. There were machines that were out at the time that could do 700 documents per minute. In wow. 1965, the first check was issued allowing sterling checks to be guaranteed up to a value of £30. So mm. that wasn't just a blank bit of paper you're signing anymore. You could, could actually have a guarantee. However, changes on the horizon. 1966, first credit card introduced in the UK. With the automation in 1968 of checks needed to be made of stronger paper. Heavier weights were used, layout and fonts came into effect. By 1968, the code covered a sort number, account and check number. So that, that's those little uh, funny computerized numbers that are at the bottom. Funny numbers, yeah. Yeah, and the ones that were read by the, the scanning machines. Yeah. Now you can't see this here, but there's actually a picture on our blog site of a person having made a check from a fish. That was actually quite oh. legitimate. In 1978, this, this man had uh, done it as a bit of a protest. He'd written a check on a 150-pound fish for a rates bill for the local council. <laughs> That's, it's a bit of an anomaly, but um, yeah, it got accepted. Uh, in 1987, the first debit card introduced in the UK. In 89, first telephone-only bank introduced. 1990, peak year of check volumes. 97, internet banking comes along. So here comes a disruptor. 2007, check volumes decline fastest ever rate. 2008, major retailers stop accepting checks. Wow, okay. Well, the, the, not every, but major ones. This is in the yeah. UK, too, I should stress, not, not here. They did have some attempts, and there's a picture here from the Barclays site where you could actually photograph your check on your mobile phone to automate yeah. it and sort of a pay by <laughs> the next day. But it seems like you're flogging a dead horse at that point. And if you go to our, our blog site, there's some links to all these, these various articles. Now, before we dismiss the check, it does have an interesting skeleton in its closet. And it's <laughs> a little known that checks were once, or, or some checks, not all, some were printed on radioactive paper. And they were actually the precursor to an ATM-style vending machine. And there was a good article I found from the BBC that talks about it. So I'll take you through the article. So the world's first ATM was installed in a branch of Barclays in Enfield, North London, 40 years ago. If you remember showed on the buses, Reg Varney from that television series was the first person to withdraw cash from this machine. The inspiration had been given to a Mr. Shepherd Barron, who was 82 at the time of this article, which is about four or five years ago. And he said, it struck me that there must be a way I could get my own money anywhere in the world or the UK. I hit upon the idea of a chocolate bar dispenser, but replacing chocolate with cash. Barclays was convinced immediately. Over a pig gin, the then chief executive signed a hurried contract with Mr. Shepherd Barron, who at the time worked for the printing firm De La Rue. So the early days, there was some teething troubles with this. Plastic cards had not been invented, so Mr. Shepherd Barron's machine used checks that were impregnated with carbon-14, a mildly radioactive substance. The machine detected it, then matched the check against a PIN number. However, Mr. Barron denies that there was any health concerns. I later worked out you would have to eat 136,000 such checks for it to have any effect on you. The machine yeah. had a maximum of 10 pounds at a time. But that was regarded as quite enough for a wild weekend in those days, he said. And uh, if you if you want I to... Guess, read, I, guess, I guess you'd have to ask Madame Curie about that, wouldn't you? Whether uh, radioactive would have any problem. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, well, she, she went to excesses, though. <laughs> Yes. So here we have the bittersweet history of, of the check. The humble check is fading from use and from memory. 
but its contribution through the various printing techniques it evolved will still find practical applications to this very day. From anti-counterfeiting measures introduced quite early in their development to the creation of individual numbered checkbooks. This is further enhanced through the links to technology by using magnetic-based inks and OCR num numerals to speed up processing. Finally, the check shows that it has a link through radioactive checks to today's ATMs that revolutionized the spread of currency. A quick thank you to the typesetters and printers and innovators that caused this to happen. And a side note, a quick thanks to my grandma for the birthday greetings all those years ago. <laughs> yeah. You know, the other thing, the other thing they put on them in more recent years, the line at the bottom where you sign the check yeah. is actually is actually type. It's in about, I don't know, two point or something. And it generally has the, the name of the bank or... And you can't see it. It looks like a line of, you know, just a, a real line, but it's actually text. Wow. Just a bit of a sidebar there. Uh, here's one that's it's sort of related, but not. In today's world, there's, I heard this on a podcast the other day. They said there's some some places that actually have websites. And when, when you see it in your mobile phone, it looks like there's a tiny spot or a bit of a hair on your screen. And when you go to flick it away, because that's what you think it is, it actually links you to a, an advertising oh, website. <laughs> really? I've never seen so, that. Wow. Yeah, apparently there's some sites that do that. I mean, it really annoys people no end. Just go, oh, me? I can imagine. <laughs> hell, I never knew that. Uh, very, very, <laughs> very clever, but, oh, jeez. I, I, I don't think I'd um, buy from a company that did shit like that, did he? No, it No. Yeah, given the big heave, oh, I reckon. Jeez, wow. Yeah, so, yeah I guess it's not surprising with everything else they can do now. Okay, so what is a bastard title? Well, it's not a harsh judgment of a book's title, although there's some that spring to mind. A bastard title also goes by the name of half title, and is a remnant from the early days of printing, when printing and bookbinding were separate trades. Despite the cost of books coming down for widespread use of printing, actual book ownership was still a status symbol. So if you wanted to print a book, you really had to use a raft of project management type skills to get your completed publication on the bookshelf at home. Printers would produce a text block. These were folded and printed pages of the book. Early bookshops contained these text blocks stacked in bins with no labeling on them. Other than being sorted into a labeled bin, you had to examine a text block to find out what was in it. Once you bought your text block, you then needed to go to a bookbinder. To help you with selection and to protect the text blocks during the binding process, printers started to print the title on the outside page. Initially, bound books followed on from the custom of the Middle Ages when books were produced by the scribes. They had very exotic covers made of wood and leather and some even with semi-precious stones embedded. This led to the books being chained when stored. As a result, their spines were not forward-facing, so you'd need to open them up. And the bastard title told you what the book contained. During the 18th century, bookbinders began to stamp titles directly onto the spines. As a result, the use of the bastard title pages started to gradually fall out of use. As an aside, it's quite interesting to look at the transformation of books in social status terms. In the 1820s in Britain, people of standing had entire collections printed and bound with their own family crest or unique design. In the US in the 1920s, collections of the classics with fancy covers and spines 
allowed you to show off your current reading. Now, if we fast forward to today, there is a thriving trade supplying books literally by the meter. That is to say, people buying books for no other purpose than for decoration. Some suppliers provide books to client specifications, for example, only books with a particular spine, color, or topic. The modern way to show off your collection is through social media. They're actually hashtag selfie or hashtag uh, bookstagram, so you can show pictures of all your books lined up. Whether you've read them or not, really doesn't matter. It's just it looks impressive. So while it might seem an ignoble fate for these old books, they do get a second chance at life, or and are ultimately there for us to appreciate the skills and crafts of printers and bookbinders from days gone by. So that's the bastard title, and uh, where it's washed up to in today's environment. Comments? Yeah. Problems? Issues? No, <laughs> no, no that's that is, no, nothing to say on that one. It's, um... Nothing like, oh, yeah, it's my world. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it was all news to me. <laughs> all news to you. Yeah. Thing. I think it all just stems back to the days when, when the book was an extremely valuable thing and handcrafted mm. and, and it was a status symbol. You know, like, like the encyclopedias in the 50s and 60s, it got sold door to door. People put them up and so... Yeah, it was a status symbol, actually. Yeah, you say that, it's true. I mean, who could afford them? You paid them off monthly for, you know, yeah. five years. Freaking hell. Yeah. You know, there was no internet. So <laughs> kids would do their homework. I remember we had a set of Funkin' Wagnalls. So we just... Um... Yeah, we have... Susanna's got them as a status symbol. She doesn't look at them. They're just part of the bookshop. Yeah. yeah. Just, just, you know, well, not... I mean, you know, we, in today's world, they're, they're out of date within a month, basically. <laughs> Uh, the ship Titanic to this day holds the public's imagination through hundreds of books, films, and even songs. The crew themselves displays his heroic dedication to their various roles, immortalised in many books, films, and songs as well, as they try to save lives and keep the passengers calm. Here is another story that is less well known, the Titanic's printers. I had often wondered about what a ship as large and prestigious as a Titanic did with its printed materials. Searching the internet, I came across some great sites and articles that will be referenced at the end of this entry on our blog site, and we'll also uh, put links to it now. this podcast. To set the scene about what printing was done on the Titanic, let's look at some of the items that they printed. You can see they spared no expense. So this is taken from the Titanic Historical Society. Menu cards and other pre-printed blanks were letterpress printed on the ship's own print shop. These same blanks, the ones made for the first class, had edges of 22 karat gold, another underlying element of unstated elegance, subtle appearances that the white star adopted on everyday items reflecting a standard for quality. The spacing between the printed words was varied, slightly different fonts were used since the type was set by hand, and a printer often adopted his own style when using what was available. Most importantly, everything in, on paper in first class on white star vessels whether it was letterheads, menus, notices, wine lists, stationery or envelopes, etc., was thermographically printed. Thermography is a chemical process which produced a glossy raised image by heat, using heat or infrared light. The image was first printed by letterpress using an adhesive ink, which was coated with a fusible resin containing pigment, pigment and metallic powder, so they had gold for the company logo. When passed under a heater, 
or infrared light, the coating fused and raised to give a sharp, clean image. From the reverse side of the paper or card, the process resembles blind embossing. So that's a lot of work being done uh, on the materials. Uh, they had a couple of their own typefaces, and if you go to our blog site, you can have a look at the faces that they had and uh, different faces that were used for different things. So when it comes to the typefaces used on board, we have proof of certain faces, but can only speculate on others. And this is taken um, from an, another blog site I found about it. Surprisingly enough, the grot face that Richardson puts forward is still very much in use today under various similar guises and digital forms. Uh, and is used as many modern variants. The typefaces in use in Titanic's print shop were commonplace in 1912. White Star exercised an uncommon degree of restraint in the use of ornamented faces. The stationery used clean, modern layouts featuring unfussy typefaces. So, who were the printers of the Titanic? The chief printer was Abraham, Abraham Mansour Micheline. Is that how you pronounce that? Micheline? Yeah. Micheline. And, uh, was that Tom? Yeah, Micheline, I guess. Yeah. And his assistant was Ernest Theodore Corbin. White Star paid them one one fifty, so... It's um, three dollars nineteen in uh, two thousand and nineteen, and one pound two dollars thirteen per week. They may have supplemented their incomes by doing private jobbing work for wealthy passengers, visiting cards, labels, etc. And again, I go back to the letterpress blog where they talk about the work they did. Uh, they were likely to have been kept busy on a boat of the size of the Titanic, but because they were such skilled compositors. They would have made short work of restaurant menus, which he, Ernest, could easily have set up in 20 to 30 minutes. Printing each batch on an Arab treadle press would take perhaps half an hour. So where were the, their quarters on the Titanic? There is some speculation about the exact location. Some references to say D-deck and others E-deck. Either way, they would have needed the space to hold the various cases of type, a working area to set out the type along with the press itself. Then there was the paper, ink, and pre-printed stock they would have to hold as well. It's fair to say they were pretty much in the middle of the ship. The type, and there's a little side story. The Titanic was also carrying a large supply of printing equipment as cargo, including something called Dragon's Blood. The cargo manifest for Titanic shows a wide range of printing-related items. There were large quantities of books and stationery in the various cargo holds, including tissue paper, parchment, and four boxes of printer's blankets. One of the most curious items shipped from Brown Brothers was 76 cases of dragon's blood. This material had nothing to do with the mythical beast, but was in fact a type of acid-resisting resin commonly used in the manufacture of printing plates. So, dragon's blood. So, yeah. where were the printers on that fateful night? We cannot be entirely sure of what was happening once the iceberg was struck. However, educated speculation has it the printers would have been in their print shop working away at producing menus for that day. Uh, a letterpress blog on the topic. On the night of the sinking, Albert Ernst probably worked late. Orders for the breakfast menu would have come in the afternoon. And although there was a set menu for certain days of the week, this was Titanic's maiden voyage, and many builds of fare were being set up from scratch, necessitating extra work. Had the ship managed to avoid the iceberg, the printers on subsequent voyages would have needed to change little more than the date on some later menus. Perhaps the men also printed Monday's lunch menus that Sunday evening. If the ship's print shop was indeed the area originally intended for 16 waiters, then it was possible Albert and Ernest also slept in the same area. 
We can only guess what happened to the printers when the Titanic struck that great mass of ice, but none of the accounts make reference of them after the collision. Both printers died in the disaster, and their widows received financial assistance from the Titanic Relief Fund, and the White Star Line stopped their wages at the moment the ship sank. <laughs> that's that's, that is, that's oh capitalism, gosh. pure and simple. I mean, where did, where did that historical fact come from? I mean, oh, that's, that's nuts. But, no, that's quite true. All, all the all the ship's crew that were out there saving the the passengers and stuff like that were not being paid for any of that. Uh, yeah, yeah. Their own sense of humanity. Uh, yeah. The tragedy of the Titanic really does seem to ripple on, and we uncover the lives of various passengers and crew. It really brings home the scale of the disaster. Uh, we hope this new typographical perspective uh, of the Titanic does appeal to you. Feel free to check out. There's a YouTube link to Harry Chapin, if you remember him, Cats in the Cradle. Um, he did about the dance band on the Titanic, if you're so inclined. And you'll find that in our blog. And I think we'll throw in a link in this podcast as well of our um, site. So, fellas, anything about the, the the good team on the Titanic? No, strong stuff. Oh, more power to them. Oh, I mean, in, in today's language uh they might have been using that uh, one night sands typeface i suppose <laughs> <laughs> that's going to be a topic of discussion mm -hmm. <laughs> tony doesn't look impressed <laughs> oh, sorry my apologies yeah, yeah. yeah but wow imagine you you know rocking and rolling on the, on the ship with the printing press I mean, even it's yeah steady hand <laughs> Well, yeah, they said it was all handset. There was no, um, <laughs> there was no monotype or linotype machine there, or anything. Although they did exist at the time, it was handset. There we are. Yeah, printed stock, I suppose. Didn't have pictures and that. I think I think they might have had some um, some art, some block art, or something like that. Blocks took them with it, yeah. 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 Well, they have had, had like you know cuts of the ship and, and, and it sailing along and all that sort of stuff. Well, I think on the Titanic, but on that uh, balloon. Oh, on the balloon, yeah. Who, who knows what they were doing? <laughs> <No one. laughs> well, and that's another episode. Thank you for making it so far with us. If you liked what you heard, please visit our Facebook site at Leadfellas, all one word, L-E-A-D-F-E-L-L-A-S, where we will be leaving links and copies of the things we covered in this podcast. There is also an active blog site called Let Fellas Blog, all one word, where you can find the links to our podcasts and our YouTube channel as well. We welcome your feedback and comments too. Drop us a line at either our Facebook or blog site. Please join us in upcoming podcasts to hear more from the Lead Fellas, and we hope you're enjoying the ride as much as we are. Thank you very much. See you soon. Bye. Let's